Hello, I'm Dr. Stephanie Phillips, joined by Dr. Michelle Seawright, and we are Georgia Medicine Women. We're direct primary care doctors, and we welcome you to our podcast, where we share stories that will inspire and motivate you in your journey towards health and wellness. Welcome to episode five. We are here today with a very special guest. Um, I'm welcome everyone, and uh, we are really glad to be here with you. I'm Dr. Phillips, and I'm Dr. C. Wright. We are uh, excited to have um, Dr. Tara Merritt here with us. She is a uh, internal medicine specialist, pediatric specialist, as well as a sports medicine specialist. So she is super, super smart, and um, also a very good friend of mine. Um, who is here, and she is an ultimate Georgia medicine woman, and we are so glad to have her here. And today we are going to be talking about a very um, special issue that's near and dear to a lot of family doctor hearts and um, a lot of primary care hearts as well, and that's um, patients and how they can advocate for themselves um, in the medical field and in their medical care. So um, before we get to that, we are going to do our medical mountain speak for the day. Dr. Merritt, I'm going to see if you can guess this one, Um, but our medical mountain speak for today is Arthur. You got to know this one. Hmm. I'm going to use it in a sentence, okay? Okay. Old Arthur has given me a fit this morning. (laughs) Hmm. Joint. Their joints? Arthritis. Yeah. 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 Joints. Yeah. Good yep. job. I knew you exactly. Knew. Yep. Okay. Awesome. Old Arthur. So if anybody starts coming up to you and talking about old Arthur, that's their arthritis flaring up. Had you heard that one before, Doctor C? Right. Oh yeah, all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Arthur coming after you. Um, so, Tara, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, how long you've been a doctor, um, and just kind of get into. Um, what, what brought you in? I mean, I know I kind of talked, I asked you what you're passionate about and you said this and I'm like, yes, we need to talk about this. Um, kind of dive in and tell us about yourself. Okay. So I am born and raised here in Georgia. Um, I was actually born in Albany, uh, good Southern city here. Um, and grew up in the suburbs of Atlanta and, um, I kind of got into medicine, um, as a, from childhood, I always wanted to be a physician. There are no physicians or really anyone in medicine up until me. Um, my father died of a brain aneurysm when I was seven. And so, um, and I'm the youngest. I have a sister that's 11 years older, who's actually a nurse now. But um, at the time, um, you know, so I grew up with a single mom. She ultimately remarried. But from that day on, I really had always wanted to be a physician. I was profoundly impacted from the neurosurgeon, Dr. Knox Kinlaw, um, who was his neurosurgeon um, at DeKalb, uh, and the nurse, Abby. Uh, And interestingly, my sister ended up becoming a nurse in the ICU at DeKalb um, with Dr. Kinlaw. And um, so it's kind of interesting how life kind of comes full circle. But that's kind of what drove me my whole life. It was never a question of you know, what I was going to be. That was always what I wanted to do. And I had a very positive experience with my family doctor who was family medicine. Um, So I knew I always wanted to do primary care. And it wasn't until 
I went off to college at Alabama and I was a track and cross country runner and had lots of injuries that I really saw the impact of, you know, what college athletics and all of that can do, particularly for females and the toll it takes on your body. And so I really kind of had an interest in sports medicine uh, after that and had a very positive experience with my team physician at Alabama, uh, Dr. Jimmy Robinson, who just actually recently retired last year, um, who was my advocate. Uh, and so all of those things kind of drove me into the direction that I went. And I did my medical training at St. George's University, and I did my residency in med, med peds uh, at the University of Kentucky, and then came back home to practice for a few years uh, because my niece had been diagnosed with primary pulmonary hypertension, and I needed to be on the home front to kind of help my sister navigate those waters uh, because it was such a unique diagnosis, and she was having to travel around the country for care. So. Uh, after practicing a couple of years in patient outpatient med peds in the Athens area, I was still passionate about pursuing sports medicine. And so I went back and did a fellowship in sports medicine at the Sedman Hawkins Clinic of the Carolinas in Greenville, South Carolina. And then ultimately came back home to the Athens area and practiced um, initially uh, with an orthopedic person and then went into my own private practice as a hybrid doing internal medicine peas and sports medicine. And uh, ultimately the last couple years took a leave from medicine to care for my mom um, who had end-stage COPD and moved in with us and I cared for her uh, until she passed last year. So during that time, I really, really got to see, you know, the other side of medicine from the standpoint of a patient. And I really became very passionate about what patients need to do to advocate for themselves and to empower them because healthcare had become so business oriented and the time that providers can spend with a patient was becoming less and less. Patients were getting pawned off to physician extenders more and more. And then when the pandemic hit, patients really became alienated from healthcare and their ability to advocate for themselves became much more challenging particularly in light of COVID and the vaccine and um, medications that were available to patients to treat it on the outpatient side. And so I really got to see both with family and friends and even personally how challenging it is for someone to advocate for what they need. Um, our medical system historically had been very patriarchal in the sense that when you went to the physician, especially here in the South, um, patients just did what the doctor said. Um, you didn't question it, you just did it. And there was a good relationship also with their provider and their physician. Um, people would stay with their doctors, you know, for decades. And they had a they had built a trust there. And when medical insurance really started to change and we started to see 
you know, first with HMOs and then with all of these ACOs and with Medicare and the paper performance and all of that, that relationship with the patient became much more adversarial. Um, if patients weren't following the guidelines that were set forth and physicians were dinged on their record for that, that created some negative interactions with patients and the physicians. And they didn't take the time to figure out, well, why are the patients not following what I'm asking? Um, is it a lack of understanding? Is it a lack of resources? Is it, um, you know, a situation where the patient isn't willing to take the side effects as opposed to take the risks of whatever the medical condition is that they are opting not to take the treatments for. And so um, it became very much of here's what you're supposed to do and then out the door. And there was never any time to understand the whole patient. And that's so important. And furthermore, I saw how the lack of integrating complementary and alternative medicine and patients and their faith was really starting to have a negative impact on the quality of life of our patients. And that just really hit home after encountering a few situations with both family and then friends. And thankfully, one of those in particular, um, I was able to get plugged in with you. Um, and I saw that I was becoming a resource for people over and over and over, even though I was no longer in the office taking care of patients. But I was the go-to for so many people that I knew to navigate these healthcare waters, knowing who to call, how to work around the system, how to um, get what they needed. And it really, really made me very sad because I started to see if this is happening and I know how to navigate the waters, but it's still challenging for me and my family, what's happening to all of our patients out there who don't have an advocate, who don't yeah. have somebody that can help them. Yeah, it's so complicated. And one thing that you said that is really resonating with me is the fact that, you know, you, you know, doctors, we went to this paper performance um, thing and it's not that doctors didn't want to take the time to do the assessments that needed to be done to see why and all that stuff. But it's like, as they piled the paper performance on, they also piled on less reimbursement, less, yeah. um, less time with patients, cutting um, double booking, triple booking doctors um, to where they could not even have time to even address one issue. Uh, so it's been a nightmare on top of everything. And so when you look at these patients who have a complicated medical problem, they're trying to navigate a complicated system. It is almost impossible. And I don't know what people do who don't have someone medical in their family. It is a nightmare. So what you're saying is absolutely true. And I'm so glad you're able to help your, your uh, patients. But I think a lot of times doctors want to help, but they just do not have the time to really help their patients navigate it because they've got so many other things that don't mean anything that they have to do that somebody in a boardroom decided was important. So it's really absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And that's the other thing is that I saw on a local um, Facebook group, uh, people complaining about um, they didn't specify a particular physician, but I, I 
just as I read all the comments, it just reiterated kind of what we're talking about that when medicine got sold to corporate America, which is what's happening everywhere, um, we as the physicians are just the hamsters on the wheel. And the behind the scenes functionings are, are really out of our control. And so a lot of the things that we're being forced to do, we don't have a say in like scheduling, like staffing even, um, and feedback from patients. And unfortunately, when the system in which we try to practice is dysfunctional, it negatively impacts us. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that was being shared in this group was the fact that these patients were really ticked off that their appointments had been changed by the provider numerous times and having to reschedule them. And oftentimes it would be like the day before or a short notice. And many of the people would say, well, you know, the doctor may have had an emergency or, you know, something came up or whatnot. And something that the patients kept saying, and I think corporate America just forgets about this, is that number one, most practices, you know, have a policy that if the patient cancels within 24 hours, they charge them a no-show fee. Um, And yet the doctor's offices can cancel and reschedule patients numerous times with no penalty to them. And some of these people were commenting that, you know, for their jobs, they aren't able to just leave to go to an appointment. They have to take a personal day. They have to take a half a day. And it's costing them money when then the doctor has to reschedule them at the last minute. And there's no recourse for the patient. And in addition, you know, when they go and they have to sit there two and three hours and they have lost a day's work, you know, the impacts that it has on them And it's true, you know, I always defended the other side of that equation because that was me, the physician that would sometimes something would come up and we'd have to reschedule. Um, But the reality is, is that our patients are living in a world where those changes and those decisions can really impact them. And so what's happened is what I'm seeing is that it's just become a very adversarial relationship. It's like, They need us because they need their medicines or they need this, but at the same time, they hate us because the system we're being forced to work in is very dysfunctional and not patient friendly. I think that's why both Stephanie and I decided to do direct primary care so that we could have that personal touch and spend the time with the patient. All there's so many times that I've had many patients tell me that I I spend more time with them than, than they, you know, thought that they were going to get that day and things like that. And, um, and I, I just truly believe that this type of practice is how, um, how I want to practice and, and how I want to treat my patients. I want to treat them like humans. And I hated running that, that hamster wheel, if you will, of like, you know, going into this, you know, being late to this one patient's room and then knowing that I've got another one just, just, you know, 10 minutes later, um, and not, not having that control, like, like you're talking about. Exactly. And I think that's what really, so I, I, I finally said to myself, I think what really hit home for me within the last year was I would do my best with people that I knew and they would call me and I would give them advice and whatnot. And, and I would, you know, try to share that information. And it dawned on me that, you know, the situation of our healthcare system is going to take a while to get it fixed. Right. So, yeah. 
you know, even if we all go into DPC, right, the biggest challenge we have all talked about that those of us that advocate and, and think that DPC is a great uh, avenue for us to start pursuing as a means to counter this negative aspect of, of corporate healthcare is that from a hospital side and specialty side, but mainly the hospital side, right? So once a patient goes in the hospital, all that we do on the outpatient side, you know, advocating for them now stops, right? Right. Because everything now is driven by hospitalists. And now mm. you've got all of this inpatient care that's that with multiple handoffs. So one, you know, experience that I think probably will be meaningful for both physicians, providers of all levels, as well as just the average person is just this, this experience that I had with my own aunt in Virginia Beach um, to really drive home the importance of learning how to be an advocate for yourself. So I basically... Um, my mom's sister, who she was really close with, um, their medical charts could have been carbon copies, but she, uh, went into the hospital right before the end of the year, right before new year's in December of last year. And she had COPD and lung cancer, which was stable. And, uh, she had AFib and some congestive heart failure. And so she only has my one cousin who's a uh, paramedic, but otherwise no one on in her immediate family is in healthcare, but she would run stuff past me every now and again. And so I was very familiar with her, her healthcare in terms of what her medical conditions and medications, et cetera, were. But so she went in with a really bad shortness of breath. She had heart failure and she had some fluid on her lungs that they needed to drain, which she had had done previous. And so when she went in, um, at the end of December, that was right around the New Year's weekend holiday. So as we all know, during the holiday seasons and during weekends, we typically are running on skeleton crews at the hospitals. And so lots of patient handoffs of care. And as we all know, we learned about the Swiss cheese model in medicine and that the more handoffs you have, the more likelihood there is that those holes are going to all line up and things are going to fall through the cracks. And so um, she had a bunch of her medicines started and stopped, one of which was her Coumadin for blood thinning. Um, and despite all of the, she had a cardiologist, a pulmonologist, a hospitalist, all involved in her care at the time. And after being in there a week to 10 days, I'm thinking, this is, this is kind of crazy. Like, why are we still in there? She normally is in and out in two, three days. And because of the holidays, things kept getting bumped and, you know, delayed. And she ended up having a heart cath, which that kind of came out of the blue. And they finally said, yeah, we need to do that. So she had her heart cath and they said, this is great. You know, we found two things to stent. She's going to be great. Things will be so much better. The doctor said to her and the family. So 48 hours later, I'm thinking, okay, we're going to be home. And I don't get a response from her. I ended up getting my cousins and she was in the ICU and um, she could hardly speak. And so I said, hmm, this is a little concerning. And uh, what had happened is she had thrown uh, two submassive pulmonary embolisms. So then at that point, after three days of normal medical management, 
they said the only option we have at this point is to try to go in and take those clots out because she was going into right heart failure and there was nothing that they were doing that was working. She was decompensating. And so here you have a lady who's in her 70s. She's got end-stage COPD. She's got severe scoliosis, so she's got significant, you know, cardiac rotation. She's got CHF. You know, she's been on blood thinners. Now she's got blood clots. You know, it screams high risk. And so the family was kind of in a situation of, okay, well, we really don't have any options. And meanwhile, she was a DNR. She was a do not resuscitate. And that was on the record with her primary cardiologist, primary pulmonologist, her family. It had been that way for years. I knew it. Everyone knew it. It was in her chart. So they go in and they do this procedure and they punctured her pulmonary artery and they coded her and coded her for 10 minutes, mm -hmm. 12 minutes, mm -hmm. and they got her back. And now she's on a ventilator, she's on full pressers, and the family is left there dazed and confused going, whoa, whoa, wait, what happened? We were advised that this was a low risk procedure. And then she has a DNR on the chart. And now you guys tell us that you code her and she's got broken ribs. She has, and she's on a ventilator on full presser support. Everything she did not want has now happened to her. So I drove up there and after 72 hours of not leaving her ICU room and basically taking control of the situation, I saw clearly what happened. And that is that although her family was checking in on her most days, no one was with her 24 seven. And they were calling all different family members with different pieces of information. And so my aunt, not wanting to worry her kids because it's New Year's and then you know, the new year, she just would do whatever the doctors were saying. And what I found out was that there were so many handoffs of care. Nobody was taking the time to actually read the chart and no one was really giving any thought as to what the long-term plan was here. And no one had put her on DVT prophylaxis. So this was a hospital acquired DVT that was due to medical error and negligence. And then they ill-advise the family that she was high risk or low risk for this procedure. And so they make a decision based upon incorrect information. And then the hospital, you know, ignored her own. Advanced yeah. And so Thank God we were able to finally get her off the ventilator. And she then had every complication, you know, when they finally started her blood thinning back, then, you know, they had a mid-level come and take her line out and no one put pressure, the pressure bandage and had her lay flat for 12 hours. And so she bled out into her thigh and developed a pseudoaneurysm. And then ultimately, you know, we could never get her out of the bed because of that. And, and then, then they had to put her on thrombin and stop the blood thinning medicine again. Then she clotted off her arm where her A-line had been. So it was just a, a, a conundrum of things. Wow. And she ended up dying. 
her last three weeks of life were debilitated in a hospital bed that she never got out of. And so during that whole process, it became very clear that despite my cousin being a paramedic, they're knee deep in it emotionally. They can't even begin to understand everything that's happening. And it finally hit home to them when I was in the ICU with all of them. And I said, you guys have to understand, you cannot leave, period, end of story. Someone in the family has to stay here. And so then my question was, okay, well, what if it's my other two cousins who don't have any medical knowledge? How am I gonna help them advocate? So I decided, okay, I'm gonna give you a crash course in med school. And that's exactly what I did. I gave them a crash course in med school over those 72 hours and I taught them what a soap note was. And I went through each organ system and I said, this is, this is what falls under this category in general. How is she? Is she more, do you feel like she can communicate with you? Is she, you know, before she was off the vent, you know, she started mouthing words. And I said, do you feel like she's who she normally is? Is this, you know, an improvement from yesterday? Are we better? Or are we worse? Then, I went down and said, okay, starting ear, nose, and throat, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Are we, how is, how is her breathing? Is she still on the ventilator? Is she not on the ventilator? Where are we going with that? Then we went to the heart. Okay, what medicines is she on for her heart? I said, listen, you guys don't have to know how all these meds work and how all this actually works, but you do need to understand what is in that category and how you advocate. I said, you may not understand all the details about it, but you as the family and she as the patient has a right to know what medication she's being given and what it's for. And I said, and by doing this on a, we did it as a notes tab in our phone. So then you could share it with the whole family and it was saved each day. And then you would just open it the next day and create a new one and modify it. And then that way everyone could see what was happening. Because the problem is, is that you don't know when they're going to round. Those days of back in the day when I was doing inpatient and outpatient, my patients knew that I was going to be in every morning by seven to round before my office hours. That isn't how it works now. You don't even know who you're going to see. Yeah. Let alone what time they come in. Mm -hmm. And then you, they don't even do a good job of identifying themselves either. Like, wait a minute, what specialty are you? And they, they change their, their titles. Now, when you're in the ICU, they're called an intensivist. But sometimes they are not the same person that is functioning as your pulmonologist. Now, if that's confusing to us, imagine what that's like for families. Right, exactly. Yeah, okay, mm -hmm. exactly. And so that's basically how we did it, is I went through and I said, okay, from her heart, she's got heart failure. What medicines are we on for that? How are they managing it? How are they following it? Are they following labs? Or are they following how much fluid she's taking out, her weight? Then I said, okay, in terms of her AFib, what are we doing as far as that? What medicines is she on for that? Is that better or is that worse? Mm -hmm. Then we went down to GI and, we, and I said, what are we doing to prevent her from getting a peptic ulcer? How is she doing as far as eating? Is she pooping? Are we feeding her? What are the plans for that? Then we went to the urinary system. Okay, is she peeing? Does she have a catheter? What kind of catheter? Are we planning to take that out? Are we checking to make sure she doesn't get a urinary tract infection? Then we went to, well, and then the lungs, backing up to the lungs. Is she on oxygen? Is she on the ventilator? What are we doing for her COPD? Then we went to just the extremities. Okay, what are her extremities look like? She's got lots of IVs. You know, does she have any swelling anywhere, any bruising anywhere? Does she have anything that looks like it's red? You know, 
anything that doesn't look normal to you guys. And then we went to the neurologic stuff. What are we doing as far as, you know, her alertness? Is she more alert? Does she seem confused? Is she aware of things? You know, uh, is there anything new there? And so we went through that. And then we, the last category was the infectious disease in terms of antibiotics. You know, okay, what is she on antibiotics for? What are they? How many days are they supposed to treat? What day are we on of that? And yep. then lastly was all of the preventative stuff. So what are we doing to prevent blood clots? What are we doing to prevent the peptic ulcer disease? And then there was kind of discharge planning. What's our goal? Are we trying to, are we going to a step-down unit? Are we thinking she's going to need long-term rehab? Are we thinking she's going to be able to go home? Because those were the things that I was having to discuss with them is when the hospital decides you're ready to go to dis, you know, rehab or to be kicked to the curb, they don't give you time to think about it. It's like, yeah, that's happening tomorrow or that's happening later today. And I said, you as the family have to start preparing for that. You have to decide, can she go home independently? As we are right now, no. So what are the plans? Is when are you guys going to rotate through here? Or are y'all thinking she's going to need to go to a facility? Because if so, you guys need to go start looking at them now because they may not all have a bed. They may not all provide what she needs or you may not like it. And I said, you all, this puts you in the driver's seat. That's what families need. They need to feel like they have some control and some say. Because when that cardiologist came in at 7 a.m. on Saturday morning to round on her, he didn't know her from Adam. I said, oh, are you on for the weekend? My cousin did. And he said, yeah. He said, um, I'm covering two hospitals. I have 42 patients to round on. And I'm on call for new heart attacks. Now, you can do the math. Assuming he got zero pages and zero heart attacks to go and have to take to the cath lab at two hospitals across town, you tell me how many minutes he can spend per patient to actually read the whole chart. And we all know that the electronic charts now are 10 times the size of a regular paper chart of data to go through, as well as all of the other provider notes, et cetera, et cetera. All they're doing when you're in a hospital is putting out the fire that's right in front of them. They have no time to figure out, well, what started the fire that got her here? He's gonna rely on the 30 seconds that the nurse gives him in report, and he's gonna to go to the last note. That's all he has time to do. And then write a note. I said, so we wonder why we have so many medical errors. We wonder why patients are getting suboptimal care. It's because the system is broken. And yep. until it can be fixed, we can't just keep going. It's broken, it's broken, it's broken. We as providers and phys mainly as physicians have an obligation to empower our patients to advocate for themselves. Because we, those of us that are so passionate about caring for our patients, can't be there for every patient all the time. Yeah. And so the, the overwhelming guilt and sadness of all that was happening to people that I knew in my own family, I said, I can't just, I can't, I have to do something. I have to do something. I may not be able to actually provide the care to every single patient, but all of those simple things. Now, I haven't even done inpatient critical care in over a decade, but the basic principles of what needed to occur wasn't even occurring. Yeah, yeah. 
And so I told each one of them, you are smart enough to do this because Mm -hmm. what they need is someone that is their checks and balances. They need somebody that's going to ask questions. Mm -hmm. They need somebody that is going to defend what they're doing. Yeah. And the only way that happens is if they're questioned and asked. Mm -hmm. Right. I think some patients are afraid to ask questions, you know, for fear that they're going to be labeled as a difficult, uh, well, patient or, or advocate. Um, but, but it needs, they need to ask number one, sometimes the doctor has so much to think about that they don't remember to stop and and actually explain things in layman's terms or, um, you know, uh, understandable terms. And then, um, be looked at as, as, um, questioning the doctor's, uh, knowledge. And then therefore, you know, the, the doctor won't, you know, talk to them anymore or something like that. Oh, um, I agree. And so I advocate for them to come at it from the standpoint of empathy, right. Of the doctor and the system of, I know you have so many patients to see, and I know you guys are super busy. And so my job is to advocate for my family member and to try to be another piece of information for you because that doctor that came in that day did not even know she had had an echocardiogram three hours before. So the point is, is that you're just taking notes of what's occurring Mm -hmm. and you're taking notes as to what the plans are because oftentimes the left hand and the right hand have no clue. The days of back when I was practicing in the hospital setting, we actually called each other colleagues and we talked about patients. And so you didn't have to rely on going to the, the note. And sometimes the notes are not in there yet. Right. The, do- the, the previous provider has just left and the note is not in the chart yet. Mm-hmm. And they're moving at such fast pace that they don't have time to pick up the phone and call the, the other provider that's on the case and say, hey, here's what I saw when I went in. And that's why I say they are left to literally put out the fire that's right in front of them. And if one piece of information is incorrect, it just keeps getting perpetuated forward in the chart because they copy and paste information from various parts of the chart. And if somebody puts in the wrong information, now that's carried through. So unfortunate, but it's true. And Um, and it's what happens. And it's, it's not about, you know, so much of blame as it is that it is what it is. And so what are we going to do about it? And so Mm -hmm. we, we have a duty to tell our patients, look, it shouldn't be this way. We agree. But until it changes, there are some things that you can do to help, to help care for you. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I saw is that medicine today is very, very much resistant to accepting that it's the end of the road for a patient. We have been trained that we fix, 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 fix. And even in oncology and in some of these fields, there are a lot of physicians that are practicing that just simply don't want to stop. They just want to keep going, going, going. And they don't take the time to stop and say, well, is this what the patient would want? Is this what the family would want? Is this really in their best interest? And it's okay to say I'm done. It's okay to say I don't want to fight anymore. And patients are oftentimes not given that ability. They're not given any time to think about that. And just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. There is 
not a lot of emphasis based on quality of life. And I think a lot of that stems from the fact that we are not doing a great job of incorporating people's faith and their beliefs into their healthcare and helping families come together around a patient to support them in whatever that decision may be. I don't think that, you know, we need to flog our patients until we've exhausted every effort. That, that doesn't serve the patient and it doesn't make me any better of a doctor. A lot of times what needs to be done is more time and care needs to be given to caring for that whole patient and saying, yes, we can do X, Y, and Z. And here's what we could possibly gain from it. But this is what your life will be like. And the question is, is, is that really what you want? Is that, is that your goal? Sometimes it's that they need to, they want to live to a certain point, you know, to see uh, some hallmark event occur in their life, or they are, you know, needing to make peace with a certain family member or, or whatnot. And oftentimes they need us as the providers to say, it's okay to stop. They need someone else to help make that decision for them. Yeah. And that's as providers, when you're moving at that speed of light, no one's taking the time to even do that. They're not connecting with their patients anymore. And so the family really has to rally around. And the only way they can really help advise is if they're a part of the care. And my aunt even said, you know, there at the very end, you know, what do you think I should do? And I said, look, here's the, here's where we are. Of course, we want to get you home. The question for you is, is the risk of doing all of these various things to try to get you to a point to be able to get home? Is that a risk you're willing to take? Because if you're not, that's okay. And our job is to do what we can to keep you as comfortable as possible because patients fear the process of dying because they fear the pain and the suffering that would go along with it. And I think once patients understand and families understand that we can do a great job of alleviating any pain and suffering that you have and alleviating pain and suffering is not a failure. It's not quitting. It's accepting the fate of what we have and where we're headed because we all will eventually get there. We need to give patients the ability to do that with dignity and in, on their terms. And what I saw was a healthcare process that was, you know, continuing to do intervention after intervention after intervention. And at the end of the day, we were treating a chart. We were treating a problem list, but we weren't treating a patient that had a soul and had a family and was done. She was ready to go. She had been ready to go. And, and that's what I pointed out to them. I said, she was ready to go for a long time. Why did you do what you did? I think because they had a medical error and they didn't want that on their back. That's not the right reason. Patients have a right to direct their care and they can't when patients are being directed by a healthcare team who literally is in and out in 30 seconds. And by the time the patient realizes that someone was in there, they're out the door. 
Right. They're not given the time to ask a question. They're not given the time of what are my options. They're not given a, literally they come in and go, this is what we're doing, blah, 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 blah. They don't ever come in and say, these are the results from yesterday. This is where we are. These are our options. What do you think about that? They're told what's happening to them. They're not given the opportunity to question it, to even say, well, I don't know that I want to do that. And to me, that's, you know, that's abuse. That's, patients have autonomy. They have the right to decide what they want for their care and whether they want it or not. And sadly, we are literally moving at such a fast pace in the hospital setting that patients are never even given a choice. The decisions are being made by people who have absolutely zero invested in them personally or emotionally and they are robbing patients of their autonomy. And the only way to fight that is to empower families to be confident, to ask questions, and to know that they may not be a doctor, they may not be anything in the medical field, but they know enough to ask questions right. and to feel confident in that. And to do so in a way that's organized and thoughtful and can then be shared with everyone else because by doing it in this systematic way, it helps keep them focused because they get emotional, they get lost in the weeds of what's currently happening. And it allows them to have a framework from which to approach each and every day so that them and their family member that's getting the care and their family members can all be a part of that process to help each other advocate for them. I love, I mean, I love this, this, what you did. I mean, with the note taking and stuff, I think you should like write a book about this. You I know? think so. Yeah. Well, so that's really what I wanted to do is I wanted to find a way to make this like a packet, you know, for like patients. Yeah. And um, because the other thing you have to remember too, is that the people that consume the bulk of our healthcare services are the last few years of our life. So these are elderly patients who are already feeling very inadequate. They're feeling very overwhelmed. They are um, oftentimes have underlying medical conditions that might impair their ability to even advocate for themselves. Yeah. They all have a tendency, from my experience, is the majority of elderly patients have a very strong belief of not burdening those around them. Right. And their desire to do that to not burden them oftentimes puts them in these crisis situations where they all of a sudden have some major crisis happen and it's like do or die. And then the family is, you know, coming out of the framework and everyone's trying to jump in and do stuff, but you know, and it's all happening so fast that nobody, you, you add all the emotion to it and they just, it's just a frenzy. Yeah. And on the other side of that too, I, sometimes I'll have people do inquiries with the practice, you know, and they want to know, you know, why should I, pay, if I'm pretty healthy and I'm doing well, why should I pay $75 a month or whatever, you know, to be a patient? Um, and I, and I just point out to them, you know, everything's great until you have something happen. That's and right. then you've got a doctor who knows you very well, who has time to make the calls that need to happen, you know, to advocate for you. And so, 
that's one of the other reasons why I love this practice model, because I do have time to call the internist or whoever is in the hospital and, and take the time to advocate. And, you know, I just recently had a patient who um, had been on several antibiotics who I thought needed admission. Um, one hospital wouldn't admit her. I, I had to send her to another hospital because the doctor, the ER doctor would not listen to me. And, you know, I sent her to the other hospital and they're like, yeah, absolutely. We need to do this, you know? So, who knows what would have happened if I hadn't called, you know, and, and right. she, she just went home and, you know, ended up septic, you know, so I, it's just a nightmare navigating this system. And um, it, it is priceless to have someone um, on your side. And this, this guide that you can make for patients would be a game changer, especially for families and that kind of thing. I think it'd be great. If you could do well, that. And like a lot of people just don't understand, you know, um, like, well, what do social workers do? Discharge planning. People don't understand, um, you know, what's considered long-term rehab, short-term rehab. Uh, who pays for that? Who doesn't pay for that? People just don't understand. And I can even tell you that even when my own mom went into hospice, I even was not fully clear as to what all hospice did in terms of how frequently they came and saw her. And... So that meant I was going to have to, you know, have additional nursing services because I'm thinking, oh, they're going to come in every day. No, they don't. And so, you know, there are just so many aspects that patients and family members need to understand that we do a great job of, quote, you know, extending life, but we don't do a great job of managing the end of life. Um, and it is oftentimes, you know, devastating for the patient and the family because, again, patients don't need to be in a situation of in the midst of a medical crisis having to decide at that moment what they're going to do or not do when they don't even have the full information. Um, you know, and family members have to step up and it's, you know, I know it's not convenient and family members talk about it all the time that someone, you know, can't necessarily be there 24 seven. But once they saw this and I got up there after two weeks of them just all kind of popping in and popping out, they saw firsthand what I was talking about. And it was amazing. Once they got it, someone was there 24 seven. They all took shifts and they figured it out. And when families can get that, then they were all on the same page. And that's what families and everybody has to understand. I get it's not convenient. No one can, but what you have to do is you have to find your, your network. You have yeah. to find your village and it might be a family friend, but by doing this framework of a note, mm -hmm. even if you don't know anything about medicine, right? Because the nurses are oftentimes the ones that give you the bulk of the information. That's actually how we discovered the doctor kept coming in and he said, oh, no, she needs to, you know, I'm convinced that she's got some underlying malignancy because she developed these blood clots on, on uh, anticoagulation. I go, oh, no, she didn't. Yeah. So here you got a doctor <laughs> pursuing and perpetuating this information to other providers that she's got to have some underlying malignancy somewhere. Yeah, I mean, that's crazy. And that's the kind of thing I'm talking about because they're not taking the time to do the research. They're not doing the time to look at the notes. Yeah, they don't have the time. They don't have the time. Yeah, yeah. So we have Exactly. To. Yeah. And so yeah. the family now becomes the 
the the keeper of the information yeah. because for one they know her medical condition like the pulmonologist at one point on one of the shifts was like questioning something about her oxygen and he's like you know it'll take us a while to get her off the oxygen i go she's on oxygen at home already meters <laughs> at home yeah like you know it, it's yeah. stuff like this that like literally these people know nothing yeah it's bad they're, they're treating the medical condition that's in the chart but they don't know the patient yeah they don't know their history yeah. they don't take the time to call their primary care doctor wow this is i feel like we could talk about this for another two hours <laughs> i know go on and on so it's something i feel like that at least on the dpc side and everything else that if we can my goal is to try to put together a packet and have a way to educate our patients so this is how you do it and then be a consultant right like then if you get into the weeds and you need some guidance then you can call up somebody yeah, I'd be happy to collaborate on that with you. Whatever, whatever we can do to help, because I want to get this out as fast as possible. I think. <laughs> yeah, you can even do. You know, it's really easy to put a small book together that you can get on Amazon. You know, and yeah, yeah. It's so easy to do that. I mean, that's what you should do, and and that way patients have a quick I mean, something cheap. I mean, you can make it even like five dollars or something. Well, that was my thing. Is my goal on this was not to make money, so to speak. Sure. Yeah. Really get the information out there so that patients mm -hmm. can advocate for themselves. And then ultimately, I think there is a role when we talk about, you know, like kind of elder care, yeah. sort of a healthcare advocate, kind of like what we have in the school system. People pay somebody that advocates for their kid to get that have special needs and need services that being a part of a team that says, wait, someone's got to be the checks and balances here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Tara. We really appreciate you um, coming on. I mean, I, I'd love to have you back, honestly. For sure, you're a wealth of knowledge. Yeah. yeah. And you know, it, like I've always said, it takes a village, right? You know, oh, we yeah. all work together. And at the end of the day, we have to all be part of the solution. And we each have a small role to play. And we can't solve the whole world's problems, but we can tackle those that are right in front of us and do it you know, my mom had an old saying, she had lots of them, but she always said, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? So we do this one patient at a time, you know? Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Thank you so much. And um, we will be following up with Tara and we will definitely post to our social media and our um, podcast. We'll be mentioning this, this thing that she's working on and I'm really excited to see it come out, Tara. I think you should do awesome. it. I love it. Well, I'm so thankful for you ladies and all the care you're providing our patients and we just have to keep at it. That's right. Thank you all for listening to this podcast. This was such good information. And I know that it will not only touch um, physicians, but also non-physicians listening to this, uh, to this, uh, specifically this episode. Um, if you are enjoying this podcast, um, go, feel free to go to wherever you listen to the podcast and rate um, and comment on, on our podcast, share it as well. Our email is georgiamedicinewomen at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Georgia Medicine Women, um, and uh, check us out. Continue to listen. I, this, I'm so excited. There's so much uh, good stuff on that I'm that I'm hearing while doing this. I'm having so much fun. Oh, I know. I love it. I absolutely yes. love this. There's so and much. God bless everyone. Uh, Thank continue you. to uh, look up and know that through all of our trials and tribulations that there is one person that will always be there for us and help guide us. And that's what we have to cling to. Yeah, I agree. And I love that 
you know, bringing in that spiritual aspect to our care in the hospital and end of life is huge. And even in day to day, we got to, we got to bring you back and talk about that some more. I want to yeah, delve absolutely. into that. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. You guys have a great one. Bye. Thank hey, you. Too. Thank you so much. Thank you.